Okay, today, no longer delayed, there's a Sunday school volunteer Christmas luncheon, too late to sign up. It's right after. And also, I understand we've already delivered a truckload of treasures for children to the local Salvation Army, thanks to your kindness and generosity. And we're still collecting until the 15th, and today's only the 10th. So let's keep them coming until we have to say stop. When you set your foot into the house of the Lord, be more ready to listen than to offer the sacrifice of fools. And as the scripture says, be swift to hear, slow to anger, and to receive with meekness, with teachability, the engrafted word, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So turn in that word about to be implanted to Second Peter chapter 3 once again. Second Peter chapter 3. And these are the only rules we have. Swift to hear. Slow to speak. Slow, please, for my sake, to anger. There's going to be some things in Romans that are coming up that I've just discovered they're going to have a very arousing effect on people and might even cause some anger. So I may be hunkered down behind this pulpit some days. But so Second Peter. Now we're dealing on Sunday mornings with the question in the Latin, quid sit? What is it? What is Romans the epistle in a general sense to get our arms around a definition of what God is intending in this epistle, not only for the days in which it was written, but for our time, not only for the people that were originally the auditors. We've seen that many of them were in tenement buildings in the urban centers of Rome and that they were slaves or imperial slaves. Some of them met in the homes of wealthier saints like Prisca and Aquila. Others met in their workplaces and we're part of the imperial Roman bureaucracy, and we're learning just what it means when Paul introduces himself as a slave. And he has many auditors in Rome who get it and say, wow, he's one of us. And yet he's a slave not of Caesar. He is an imperial slave of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, as the song said, Lord of all creation. And so we're asking the question, what is it in a general sense? Then on Wednesdays and Thursdays, we're asking the question, is it so? Onset, A-N-S-I-T. Is it so? By going verse by verse. We've already gone from Romans 1, 1 to 7 and from Romans 16, 1 through 15. And we're using what I call a pincer movement. And that's when we come in from both flanks toward the center. Instead of teaching Romans from start to finish, or as we taught Galatians once, from the back to the front, we're teaching from the front and the back to the center. And at the very heart and center of Romans, we have what we call the unchained gospel. And there's nothing like it ever written anywhere by anyone. And it is God-breathed truth with a specific emphasis on us today, as we're going to see. The emphasis is on us today also. There's a scholar named F.C. Porter, 
and in my many readings of Romans and many commentaries, he wrote this following quote about Paul. He said, it is necessary to understand the differences between Paul and Christ and the differences between Paul and ourselves. But the greatness of Paul consists in his likeness to Christ and also in his likeness to us, his power and right to bridge the centuries and become our contemporary. I was thrilled to read that, especially after our series called Better Call Paul, because he has bridged the centuries and has the power and right to become our contemporary. So we should consider that he speaks to us today in a very powerful, immediate way, as if we called him on the phone, and he answered. And this is supported in this succinct summary of all of Paul's epistles. We have in 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus summaries of all of Paul's epistles. And they're very profound and they're very interpretive. They're very deeply interpretive of the entire epistle. And I want to take that trend with us as we go into Romans. But here's 2nd Peter 3.15. We've read this before but I want you to see a couple of new angles on it. Peter writes, And think of the patience of our Lord as salvation. Equate it with salvation. We've entertained the idea that God's patience is infinite, and so his salvation must be universal. Just as our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given to him. And we must understand the wisdom given to him is the insight or a spectacular disclosure of a mystery that was hidden in silence for long ages past, but is now apocalyptically revealed. So he speaks... According to the wisdom given to him, and he has, has written to you. And he speaks. Notice this. He has written past, and he speaks present. That present is a vivid historical present, so it takes in a present tense not just to the original hearers or auditors of this epistle, but forever present. So it's immediately present to us. It's an actual tense in the Greek text called vivid historical present. So he has written to you and he has, he speaks presently about these things in all of his epistles. Here we have a unique phrase speaking of all of Paul's epistles My accent here is especially Romans, especially Romans, as we'll see, in which there are some matters that are hard to understand, and we have to understand that. To try to simplify Paul is to insult the Spirit of God that inspired him. You can't simplify Romans. Romans isn't simple. People have tried to make a seventh-grade-level translation of Romans, and it comes out pale and bland and almost meaningless. They say things like, instead of the mystery, 
in, that was silent for ages past, they say a secret that was kept for a long time. Now, what does that say? You cannot simplify or keep it simple when it's complex. You can't perform a heart operation on someone if you haven't had medical training. And so why is theology supposed to be reduced to some simplicity? It's, it can't be. So there is a complexity of Romans, but it gets to a punch that is unbelievably effective in our time, right now in our time. And many have distorted this epistle. They've distorted the most profound doctrines of justification, even in the, even in the so-called Reformation, and before and after and now. And they have also distorted the doctrine of election, making it some kind of selection of a few. And by the misinterpretation of the things that are hard to understand in Paul, especially Romans, especially about justification and election, a lot of ministers have been shipwrecked on the rocks of Paul's epistles. And they have, it says right here, they have twisted these hard things. The ignorant and unstable distort them to their own destruction. And I'm not talking about the destruction. I'm talking about ministries that have ended their effectiveness but keep on going through the motions with songs and singing and worship and banging tambourines or whatever you do or silent piety or good works and all this stuff, but they've died long ago because they have distorted the message in Paul. And they've made it something that it isn't. My goal is to so teach this not to accentuate the destruction of those that have distorted it, but to press for their restoration. And so that's coming up too. But please notice two things. Paul has written to you. Peter, in this case, isn't writing to a group of churches scattered across Asia Minor, as he did in 1 Peter. He doesn't even say an audience. He just says to you, plural. He intended this, or at least the spirit who breathed it intended it, for this audience right here today in the 21st century with exactly the same amount of power that it came to the original audience. Paul has written to you. Unlike 1 Peter, where a specific readership was intended, as you can see in 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, 2 Peter simply addresses you. Note also in this passage that Paul, quote, speaks in all his epistles. Lalon is the word here in the Greek text. I'm not going to get fancy with it, as I said this year, but Lalon, L-A-L-O-N, appears in 2 Peter 3.16 in what we call a vivid historical present. And by this tense, the speaking of Paul is invested with a sense of immediacy to all audiences regardless of the time in which they live, or the place and sector geographically where they live, or the language that they speak. So like Abel, and I love, I was thinking of J. Vernon McGee this year. Once in a while I listen to his messages so I can either argue with him or appreciate him, but he being dead yet speaks through the Bible with his southern drawl. But as Hebrews 11.4 says, Abel, being dead, still speaks. He speaks about the sacrifice of a lamb. 
Paul is like Abel being dead, he still speaks. And we know for a believer like Paul or Abel to be dead is to be alive in the presence of Christ. It's just to be dead physically to this world or to be, as the scripture says, asleep in Jesus, but very much alive, more alive than we are. Compared to what it's like to be face to face with Jesus Christ from death onwards, we're just sleepwalking here in our in terms of our awareness. And so it's my intention that the Spirit will awaken us. The age-abiding and ageless Spirit, as Hebrews 9.14 calls the Holy Spirit, the age-abiding and ageless Spirit, intended for Paul to speak as powerfully and freshly to his audience here today as to the audience of the 50s A.D. in Rome. Paul has written to you, denotes a past act. Paul has written his epistles, all of them to you. And thanks be to God, his epistles are ours. They belong to us. What a treasured possession. Give me nothing for Christmases all my life. I've got the biggest present right here. I have the unspeakable gift of God's son, And I have the unspeakable gift of the scriptures and the Pauline epistles included. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 21, whether it's me, Paul said, or Peter, or Apollos, which seems to indicate that he might have written something, whether it's me or Peter, Cephas or Apollos, all belong to you, he said. All of us belong to you. That means our writings, what God gave us, our insights, our wisdom, We belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. What else belongs to you? Death, life, this world, the universe, all things. Everything belongs to you, because God, who didn't spare his only son, also gives us freely all things, having given him, in Romans 8.32. And all the way through 8.39, if you're interested in reading at the heart of the heart, of Romans. And so Paul has written to you, but he also speaks presently and powerfully through the same eternal spirit. He said it to the Corinthians when he had a disciplinary action that he had to enact in Corinth and he wasn't there and couldn't get there. He said, I'll be present in spirit. And so he is present in spirit. And, of course, more importantly, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus Christ speaks. The eternal Spirit, as he's spoken of in Hebrews 9.14, is the eternal Spirit through whom Jesus Christ offered himself to God the Father without spot, meaning as a lamb, in order to purify our consciences from dead works by his blood, in order to serve him, to serve the living God. To the living God, all are living, including the dead. That'll be a subject bringing, I will bring into play pretty soon, more and more. So now, as we saw last week, Paul speaks in all of his epistles of the things that Second Peter speaks of. That means everything that Second Peter speaks of. That includes the faith that we received by the act of deliverance enacted by God or by the righteousness of God and of Jesus Christ our Savior in 2 Peter 1.1. These things, 
that Paul writes about in all his epistles also includes a stern warning about the insurgency of false teachers. Second Peter 2, all the way from 1 to 22, deals with that, as does Second Peter 3.16, as we've seen, and 3.17. The things that Paul writes about in all his epistles also includes a universal change of ages or eons involving the dissolution of the old, including the old man, and the coming or the onset of the new, including the new humanity. In 2 Peter 3, 10 to 4, metaphorically demonstrated by the language of cosmic catastrophe and a new heavens and a new earth. In 2 Peter, we also have that are written in Paul's epistles instructions as to how to live in the light of that age that has come and that is yet to come in all of its fullness and power and glory. And that's 2 Peter 1, 16 to 18, 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11, 3, 14, and 3, 17 to 18. Most significantly, they speak of, as we saw last week, the patience of our Lord, which should be regarded or equated as salvation. Now, before we get into what I know is going to be the question, because I know what you're thinking, People are going to say patience is our is salvation, but what about love? And I'll just start off by saying what I was going to say at the end. Love is patient. In all the descriptions of love, all of the descriptive words used to describe love in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, which is more than a poem to be cited at weddings and sorority meetings, it's far more profound and apocalyptic. Any translation I read now that tones down the apocalyptic, smashing, awesome, spectacular power of, the God, of God's act in Christ is a translation that I reject out of hand. And it is, there's a big movement to tone down the apocalyptic, which I believe Paul is an apocalypticist. He's speaking like John in Revelation of a shocking, universal, salvific, apocalyptic disclosure, kept silent in God for ages until God breathed that mystery into the minds and hearts of precogs called prophets who wrote them down in their holy writings in advance, and then it popped when Jesus Christ came and revealed himself to be God in the flesh was manifested as God in the flesh, died a slave's death on Calvary, was buried a criminal's death, a criminal's burial, and resurrected as King of kings and Lord of lords and the God of all creation. And this is what any translation that tones it down by trying to make it simple or trying to make it appealing or trying to make it informal is a translation I reject repudiate in fact kind of hate so these things most importantly includes the patient of our lord which is salvation the patience of our lord all these things have been inaugurated with the promise of a glorious fulfillment including our participation in the divine nature by the divine power of God, which is ours now 
in some meaningful and substantial measure, but certainly not even comparison with the measure that we will participate in the divine power and divine nature in our resurrection bodies, which we hope for. We hope, we wait for the hope of the glory of God. So all these things in Second Peter and in all of Paul's epistles have been inaugurated with the promise of a glorious fulfillment by the Christ event. The Christ event brought all this together. That means the death, burial, and resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, triggered it all. So listen to this carefully, because I'm hitting some of the high points right at the beginning. Instead of trying to exegete this painstakingly and tediously and making it tedious to you, I'm hitting some of the high points early, some of the magnificent points early, striking these notes to hit them again and again and again and again until you own this epistle. And in the process of owning this epistle, your old man is going to dissolve in front of your eyes. Because a lot of the things which are people direct to, oh man, oh man, oh man, where Paul seems to be directing his rebuke to this other person, we may find one day that like Nathan said to David, you are the man. And that's the whole thing about Romans. You are. That's you. You mean I'm a religious, pious, self-righteous hypocrite? Yeah, that's you. So put him off. Put off that old man. Put him off. and Put on the new man. And the new man happens to be one Jesus Christ. So, radical solution to the dissolution of the old man and the old age and the old aeon. The coming day of judgment. And this is very important. Paul speaks about it in Romans 2.16. The coming day of judgment is when the striking significance of the Christ event, Jesus Christ's crucifixion, burial, and resurrection from the dead, will become known to all mankind. The so-called second advent is the first advent revealed in its total clarity. It is the crucified Christ. They shall see him whom they have pierced. The so-called judgment is the disclosure that the judgment fell on the judge in the appearance of Jesus Christ. And that will dissolve the self-sufficiency, the self-righteousness, the glorying in the flesh that still lives on in me. I said me. And all of us. And so, you see, I paid attention to these things all week long instead of to the news. I paid attention to these things hour after hour after hour instead of to sports. Although I get a little bit of news and a little bit of sports. I paid attention to this exercise of my brain and mind and heart and soul and guts a lot this week instead of bodily exercise, but did just enough of that to stay alive. Because I'm an omnivore, as I just said. That's going to be a big issue in Romans. There's the veggie eaters, and there's the people who eat only a certain amount of things, and then there's the omnivores. That means they eat everything. And there's judgment going on between the herbivores and the omnivores and the horrible, horrible carnivores. And all of this Paul dispels. Paul dispels 
all kinds of antagonisms, male and female, slave and free, slave and freed slaves, Jew and Gentile, and every other group that has its own stinking bias today that causes it to have a sense of moral or spiritual or cultural superiority over other groups. And every group that has a bias has this sense of needing some kind of honor or some kind of sense of superiority over other groups. You know what Romans does? Blows the hell out of all those biases. Blows the living daylights out of them. That's Romans. The coming day of judgment, then, is when the significance of the Christ event becomes known to all of humankind who will have been raised bodily from the dead, or, as the Scripture calls it, the resurrection of the dead, which is assured to us because of the resurrection from the dead of one Jesus Christ through whose faithful death, all are given life. And that's not just life to be punished in. That means the life of Christ that's risen, raised, the glory of God. So in this way, the secrets of all human beings will be judged, as Romans 2.16 says. The secrets of all human beings will be judged. Now, part of that meaning means our secret desire for an honor and a superiority over others demolished utterly. And it should be happening little by little now. And Romans might do a pretty good job of that on you now. Romans, that's what it is. So the second advent is really the stark realization of the first advent, which is, People don't pay attention to it now. It's all about a manger and a baby. Instead of a manger and a baby who grew up and went and endured the horrible death of the cross. A baby, the Prince of Peace, born in the midst of violence and resentment, where a king was so jealous of hearing about a king being born that he slaughtered every kid in a province under the age of two to get to Jesus. That's Christmas. The Prince of Peace was born into a violent environment. People still die all around him. I'm dying every day right around him. Thank God. I don't wish for death as a release anymore. Because I'm dying every day. The result of that is to be made alive in Christ. So the coming day of judgment, this so-called second advent, is just the first advent becoming starkly obvious to everyone. When he appears, every eye will see him, says the scripture. We're talking about eyes, bodily eyes. And they will see someone who I've newly named Yahweh pierced. They will see Yahweh pierced. Zechariah says they will look upon me, and he is Yahweh speaking, God of gods. 
they will look upon me whom they have pierced. Yahweh pierced is Jesus crucified. I determined to know nothing, nor does Romans know anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Romans does not recognize a superior group of people among other groups or over other groups of people. No matter how pious, no matter how sanctimonious, no matter how law-abiding they call themselves. The Bible doesn't recognize this. It recognizes the honor of a crucified man. The honor of a crucified slave. The honor of a crucified criminal. Who happens also to be the word made flesh. The word was made flesh. And in the flesh he was made sin. So that you could be made the righteousness of God in him. That's astonishing. And that's what Paul means when he says, I serve Christ in my spirit. My spirit. That's the essence of what I am. I remember when Jared was taking karate classes. My son was taking karate. And C.S. Kim, who was the master of the masters of all of the Tang Sudo in the world, he would, a, kid would hit, a kid would look at a block of wood and say, I can't. An eight-year-old kid with skinny arms, he's saying, I can't break that block of wood. So he goes, boom. And then C.S. Kim says, do it with spirit. And the kid would go, boom, and the thing would go, wham, and it would break in half easily. And then he'd kick one, and it would break in half. Elbow one, break in half. I watched my son do that, and I said, I, couldn't, I can't believe he did that. But it was always, do it with spirit. And you know what spirit means? Audacity. It means, in our case, a spirit of awe. The reason I spend time in the word is because it creates in me awe so that when I stand in front of an audience or speak to a person quietly or loudly, I can do it with audacity. Isaiah was very audacious when he said, I was found by a people who didn't seek me. What? And all day long I I extend my hands to a religious people who defy me. Isaiah was very bold. Paul was very bold. I am very bold because the spirit of awe with which we preach this gospel produces, and you can't even help it, a spirit of audacity. If I spent two hours in the word this week, I wouldn't be audacious. But because I spent 40 or 50 hours and more, and then think about it for the rest of my life, and dream about it at night, I'm audacious. I take it pretty seriously that when you're set apart to the gospel of God, you're set apart from everything else. You are dedicated to one thing, one thing, one thing. And so, a little personal testimony as we wind down the year 2017. So, When every eye sees Yahweh pierced in the crucified and risen divine and human Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord, and when every eye sees him, even those who pierced him, and that's not just the people that crucified him, even those that pierced him is a designation that belongs to every eye. 
You don't think you pierced him? I don't think I didn't pierce him. Do I think I didn't pierce him with my self-righteousness, with my arrogance, with my need for prestige, with my need to have some kind of sense of honor and superiority over someone else? Did I ever feel that? Then I pierced him too. Was I under the control of sin as a slave to sin? Yeah. Was I under the control of the flesh? Yes. Was I living in the fear of death? Yes. Did I pierce him? Yes. Then when I, my eye sees him, I will be one of the eyes of those that pierced him when I see him. So, even those that pierced him, that means when every eye sees him, that's when all flesh together experiences not a judgment unto damnation, but a judgment unto total rectification and setting right. Because we will, it will dawn upon us if it hasn't already begun to do so under the ministry of the word. And that's the blessing of the ministry of the word. It will dawn on us fully that the judge received the judgment. Our judgment. And so all flesh together and at once will see the salvation of the Lord. Luke 3, 6 Confer with Isaiah 40 and verse 5. And that's why the scripture says, look unto me all you ends of the earth and be saved. In Isaiah 45, 22. All the human race turned aside altogether. Demonstrated not only in Adam, but in the life of every human being. All turned aside altogether. Romans three twelve. All will see him and experience his salvation altogether. When we see him, we will all experience God as a consuming fire. Jesus said, everyone gets salted with fire. We say, no, not me. Only unbelievers are going to get salted with fire. Only people whose works are just wood, hay, and stubble are going to be salted with fire. Jesus said, everybody gets salted with fire. So when we see him, guess what happens? We will experience God as a consuming fire, and he will consume all that would be against our salvation. Did you hear that last part? He will consume all that would be against our salvation. 1 Corinthians 3.15, Nevertheless, he shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Who's he? He's the guy that hasn't even put anything together other than wood, hay, and stubble. Our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12, 29, and love is called a fire that can't be quenched in Song of Solomon 8, 6, and 7. So the fire of God's love instantly and not in a purgatorial concentration camp for 20,000 years, but in an instant consumes everything that would be against our salvation. It's a fire that transforms and transfigures, that punishes the evil by its total elimination. While it transforms the creature, whether the creature is human or angelic, into the image and likeness of God, which Christ is. Now argue, if you will. Come on. Arg- not out loud, not right now. There's only, you know, I hate to say this, but 
This is the only time in the week when I can say, I'm talking, nobody else. Rest of the week, I'll listen. But I got to talk now or God will have me up against the wall with a lecture. So then, argue if you want. Object if you wish. Cry heresy! Some of my contemporaries are doing so, if you wish. And say that I've lost my blanken mind, which also has been said recently. I was curious to find some of my friends, some of whom I was ordained around the same time, have said he's lost his elfin mind. Say it if you want. I don't care. But I'll tell you this. God will be all in all. And Christ will comprise all created reality. No matter how much you protest, how much you argue, how much you resist, how much you accuse, it doesn't matter. God will be all in all. Christ will comprise all created reality because that's God's unstoppable determination. And you, with your religious preconceptions that you've built up since you were old enough to walk down an aisle, might have to change your mind. And guess who does that? Not me. Not a pastor, not a teacher, not an evangelist, not a friend. God will convince you. Philippians 3.15. God will convince you. Philippians 3.15. If anybody's otherwise minded, God will convince them. So that huge burden is off my shoulders. I'm free. If I could, I'd dance. If you ever watch a movie and you watch, I don't recommend movies because I don't know what, there's probably some scene in there that's really bad no matter what movie you recommend, including kids' movies, which are some of the most offensive, but especially when they star some sorcerer or some idiot. But anyways, if you ever watch a movie called All the Pretty Horses, which is a book written by Cormac McCarthy, the, one of the last scenes is a guy watching one of the main characters on the phone, and he's talking about something in which he's sort of declaring his freedom in a certain thing from what happens throughout the whole movie. And this, there's this guy, and he's in Mexico, and he's staring at him while he's on the phone. And then he smiles, and then he breaks into this dance. He starts dancing. He's silent, but he's dancing because he's so happy. Because he hears from the lips of the guy that's trying to talk quietly on the phone a message that has to do with freedom. His own freedom, his liberation. And it's just, it's very, it's an unusual. Cormac McCarthy writes some books that understands the gospel. And so I don't know if Hollywood can translate it into good movies. But that, that movie was worth, well worth watching just to watch that one scene very near the end. So. God will be all in all, and Christ will comprise all created reality. That's his unstoppable determination, according to Ephesians 1, 9 through 11. Even in the eternity of God, God already is all in all, and Christ already comprises all in the eternity of God. 
This is in accord, not with the secrets of men that will be untold or told and destroyed in Romans 2.16, according to Paul's gospel. But this is according to the mystery of God that was silent for ages of time before the writings of the prophets came into being by the breath of God. Romans 16.25 and 26, Romans 1.2. And preached in advance, these prophets preached in advance the gospel of God's Son. The mystery stopped being hidden not when Paul wrote, but when Moses wrote, and when the author of Genesis wrote, and when the priestly author wrote in Genesis, the gospel was preached in advance. In fact, in the first verse of Genesis, I would argue, in Christ, NRK, and Christ is called R.K. In Christ, God made the heavens and the earth. God made the heavens and earth to be comprised of Christ. That's the whole gospel right there. So, that mystery was hidden long ages until the gospel was proclaimed in advance by the prophets, in the scriptures of the prophets. And then now, with the name Jesus being attached, it's taken on a whole new glorious light. So as the scripture says, long ages of time it was kept silent before the writings of the prophets came about by the breath of God and preached in advance the gospel of God's son. And I want to close with that idea, God's Son, Romans 1, 2. God's Son, who is from the seed of David according to the flesh, hereditary lineage, verse 3. Designated to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of sanctification by the resurrection of, or not of, but from the dead. Of who? Of God's Son. God's son, I say, who, when everything is subject to him, and it will be, sit at my right hand till I make all your enemies a footrest for your feet, when everything is subject to him, the son will also subject to him, the father, everything subjected to him, so that God may be all in all. First Corinthians fifteen twenty. argue if you want. Accuse if you wish. Object if you want and resist if you desire. God's going to bring that about. And it will be irresistible by your resistance. By my resistance. By the resistance of principalities and powers. By the resistance of group bias. And if group bias isn't destroyed in America, America will be destroyed. In fact, don't let your patriotism, if that's what you want to call it, for your certain nation mean a bias. Because that's not patriotism, that's arrogance, and it's punishable historically. I hate to be prophetic. I hate that part because it's, I don't mean I hate it. I just hate doing it because it's not pleasant. But, 
God the Father, in answer to a prayer in Isaiah 63, 19, tear open the heavens and come down, said people. God tore open the heavens. And God the Father tears the heavens all the way from his throne down to earth and says with a voice that reverberates and resonates to us today, this is my son. I'm very pleased with him. So that makes me not only pleased ultimately with anybody else, but only with him. But you know what that also makes me think? I shouldn't be so pleased with myself to think that I deserve some kind of honorific title or prestige or recognition above anybody else. And this is what Paul is rebuking in Romans. We don't know what he's doing. He's got a universal gospel here going, but it gets to the heart of a very local problem in Rome, but it also gets to the heart of a very local problem located hereabouts and hereabouts in every human being. Say, I didn't expect this. I thought you were just going to continue on that whole universal salvation thing without getting to me personally. You came to the wrong place. You should join a Unitarian church. And you can get their handbook called, I'm okay, you're okay. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And damn it, people like me. You really need that. So then, I'd say screw you, but what I mean by saying, what I mean by saying that is, screw you to the cross where the old man stays. Now then, God the Father tears the heavens from his throne to the earth, just like he tore the veil between us and the holiest place of all when Christ cried, finished. Or when Christ committed his spirit to the Father. This is my son in whom I am very well pleased. This is my son. Hear him, he says on the Mount of Transfiguration, in which Jesus Christ was transfigured including his clothing, to reveal that one day God will transfigure all of creation, even the fabrics that people wear. Can't wait for that runway. Now, this is my son, hear him. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Guess who heard that? This is my son, hear him. Peter who had a lot to say in objection, in resistance of Jesus going to Jerusalem to be mocked, tried, spit upon, punched till his face was not recognizable as human, whipped with a cat of nine tails until the flesh was ripped off down to the muscle, nailed to a cross, jammed into the earth so that he fell out over the earth 
every joint screaming in terror and horrifying pain while he never said a word. Peter wanted to resist that. And the father broke in and said a chapter later, you listen to him. That's going to happen to him. And it's going to happen because that's the way I save the human race by his patient endurance of the cross. Regard the patience of the Lord, our Lord, as salvation. Let the eternal spirit, therefore, as we study Romans, remove the stony heart. When he removes the stony heart out of us, it's a shock because we see the stony heart in hardened Israel. We see the stony heart in the pagans of Romans 1, 18 to 32. We see the stony heart in the judgmental person, the judgmental religionist in Romans 2, 1. We see the stony heart in hardened Israel or among the barbarians that Paul wants to reach in Spain as he already reached in Scythia. But it's in us. Let the eternal spirit remove the stony heart and put in you a heart of flesh. Not just any flesh. The flesh which the word became. The word eternal God himself became flesh so that he could become one flesh with all flesh. And he became in that flesh sin so that you could be made the righteousness of God in him. It's a divine action. It's divine power. It is not of yourself. Lest anyone should boast. Romans means the end of human boasting. In fact, Romans in one sense is actually an exegesis of fanning out an exposition of the prophet Jeremiah's words where Yahweh spoke through him and said, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the intellectual glory in his education or his brilliance, or the reputation he has of being a scientist or a philosopher. Let not the strong man, the man endowed with physical ability, athletic ability, warrior ability, political strength and power, social presence, let not that person glory in their wealth. But let him that glories, glory in this that he knows and that he understands me, says the Lord. And I exercise righteousness, divine deliverance in the earth, and mercy that's universal. It's really strange, but we really don't appreciate the depth of God's mercy until we really know that we need mercy. Till then, there's something in us that's resisting the spirit, something in us of group 
or individual bias, something in us that joins the general bias of humanity that kind of thinks that we should be rewarded for some kind of goodness that we have. So the more we see that the gospel of God is all about his son, the more we hear God speak in his son, the more we want to think today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't harden it. I can't tell you the people that have hardened their heart because they've grown up and they've been taught like I was about a works-oriented thing or a ritual-oriented thing or a dispensational tunnel vision. And so they close up. Oh, no, we can't think that way because, because why? Because that will get rid of every last stitch of self-righteousness in you, wouldn't it? And every stitch of glorying above others, wouldn't it? That's what Romans is all about. Because we got five groups in Romans. I identified them already on Wednesday and Thursday. Five churches, cells in Rome. Each one pitted against the other. A fractured church that needs the healing word of the unveiled gospel. A fragmented church, just like we have today, only we don't have five cells. We got 5,000 cells. And Paul understands that if he's going to finish his mission that started in Jerusalem and circled all the way up to Illyricum in Eastern Europe and will end in Spain where the barbarians are, the ones that have never heard before, Paul knows that if he's got to go through Rome to get to Spain, he's going to need logistical support. He's going to need guys and women that will go with him as a team. He's going to need financial support. He's going to need logistical and tactical support. That's what Romans 1, 8, and 9 is all about, that I may receive from you and you receive from me and he goes to Spain but if he goes to Rome and he finds five fractured churches calling each other weak in faith or glorying that they're strong in faith despising their brother over food or meat or drink and they're fighting over every other thing and what the Jews did in the past and what the Gentiles did in the past and what the pagans are doing and what the Jews have done and they're fighting all over the place. How can there be an advancement of the gospel if there's such a shattered church? Romans gathers, 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 unites and gathers. It gathers and gathers. Just like William Wallace said to Robert the Bruce, unite us. Unite us. Unite us. That's what Romans does. It unites us. Unit integrity among believers imitates the unit integrity of the triune God, that they may be one as we are one. And if they have love for one another, Jesus said, then the whole world will know they're my disciples. The greatest impact for world mission isn't the passion in your heart to witness. It's the unit integrity of the churches. It's the unity of the people of God. For where the brethren are dwelling together in unity, there God who commanded this gospel commands a blessing, and the blessing is life. Life forevermore. So the more we hear God speak in his son, the more we appropriate the supreme significance of his son and his preeminence over all things. And the more the eyes of our heart are enlightened to see the depth 
of God's love in a crucified Messiah, as well as the breadth and width of his love in a universal horizon of restoration and salvation and reconciliation. We must pay as much attention to the radical center of our redemption as we do to the universal horizon of restoration that it begins. This is Romans. This is what Romans is. Quits it. This is what Romans is. Until Jesus Christ comes and with him, the rectifying resurrection of the dead. There's going to be all kinds of injustices in this world and all kinds of outcries for justice in this world. And they're not going to be satisfied until every eye sees the victim and the victor and the one whose victory refused to triumph over his oppressors, but instead save them. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity of once again asking the question, Quidsit, what is it? What is this Romans, the epistle that we're studying? And we're recognizing that the human author, though he is with you face to face, he's died and he's with you, still speaks. He speaks to us with the same power that Romans came across when Phoebe or Tertius or others read this gospel in a tenement building in the slum district in the ghetto of Rome, or read this in the suburbs of Rome in the house of the wealthy entrepreneurs, Achilla and Priscilla, or read this in the workplaces of the imperial bureaucracy in the heart of the heart of the cosmos diabolicus called Rome. The same power that is the word that brings healing, the same power that unites the fractured, fragmented cells, pitted against one another because of group bias and elective arrogance. May this gospel through Romans, be the message wielded by the eternal, age-abiding, ageless spirit through whom Jesus Christ our Lord offered himself without spot to God as the spotless lamb. May that same spirit permeate our souls, our minds, and saturate our beings with this message so that we become living epistles not written with ink but with the spirit of the living God. And that that may have an impact truly in a missionary sense wherever we live and wherever we go. I ask these things, Father, with absolute confidence that they will be done. Absolute confidence without a shed, a shred of doubt, without a stitch of wondering about it. I Ask these things with absolute confidence in the answer that you're giving already and will continue to give because I've asked it not in my name. I've asked it not in my merits. I've asked it in the name and under the merits and through the merits of Jesus Christ, our Lord, whose patience already is salvation because his patience endured the cross. And now he's sat down at your right hand. Give us eyes to see him, Father eyes to see him because the more we see him with our eyes in this world the more our knee tends to bend and the more our tongue tends to acknowledge our allegiance 
to this King of Kings.